the Holy Gospel of our Savior Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, O Christ. Jesus said to his disciples, When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth who comes from the Father, he will testify on my behalf. You also are to testify because you have been with me from the beginning. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. Yet none of you asks, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will prove the world wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment, about sin because they do not believe in me, about righteousness because I am going to the Father and you will see me no longer, about judgment because the ruler of this world has been condemned. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own, but will speak whatever he hears, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. For this reason, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. So today is the Feast of Pentecost, and the day that Christians celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit. We've got two uh, great scripture texts from today. Uh, first, the famous Acts story of that actual moment of the coming of the Spirit, and what happened immediately thereafter, that we just heard read in, in multiple languages. And then there's that Gospel story from John, where Jesus talks about this Spirit. Um, I'm going to start with that. So the word that Jesus used to describe this coming spirit in the Greek is paraclete. Uh, it's a fairly well-known term for some reason within many Christian circles. Um, and this word paraclete is translated in lots of different ways. Comforter, helper, in today's gospel, advocate. Um, but I found myself thinking this week about a, um, a, a less common translation of this term. Uh, and that's mediator. Now, I'm being a little fast and loose here, uh, uh, but I'm thinking about the Holy Spirit as one who mediates in the world, as one who enters into the middle of places of brokenness and brings healing and reconciliation. So even if that word mediator is maybe not the best translation, honestly, advocate's probably a more fair translation. Uh, more accurate translation of the original word. Um, I think it's a theologically appropriate word to use um, because that is our understanding of some of what God does, God's Spirit does, gets in there and mediates, uh, indwells in our world. And so if God's Spirit is mediator and we are a people of God's Spirit, um, then we too have some sort of mediating role to play in the world. Some role, like the Spirit, to get in there, to roll up our sleeves and to make peace. 
The reason, if you haven't guessed already, that this mediator word is what uh, I found myself thinking about is because of Palestine-Israel. The return of violence there. Their seemingly intractable and eternal conflict. What responsibility, if any, do we as American Christians have? What does it mean to be a people of the Spirit, the Spirit who is a mediator? A few thoughts I want to share about what this um, mediating responsibility um, might look like for us. First, I think a mediator is one who has a willingness to share and even concede. I read a, about a, a Jordanian Muslim scholar named El Hassan bin Talal. He wrote this week about Jerusalem. El Hassan is a royal prince of Jordan, and as such, in their tradition, he's understood to be a direct descendant of Muhammad, and so is understood further to be a custodian of the Muslim and Christian holy sites in Jerusalem. In his tradition, he owns that to some extent. And yet, this is what El Hassan wrote. He wrote, Jerusalem is a shared gift, not the sole property of one government or one people. El Hassan, as much as anyone else, if not more so, would be entitled to stake a claim to exclusive ownership in the Holy Land. Yet he seeks an ethos of sharing. I think we Christians often fall too deeply into the trap of a sense of ownership. But mediation requires sacrifice and sharing. I think a mediator is an advocate for those with less, those on the outside looking in, an advocate for those that are voiceless and powerless, for those that are victimized and oppressed. You might have seen what our parishioner Alan Perez this past week wrote about Palestine, as well as the violent suppression of protesters in Colombia. Alan wrote this, let us denounce a carnage as we feel so called by the Holy Spirit. Today, Palestine and Colombia are bleeding. Let us pray for a cessation of violence, but let us not forget, not for an instant, who is the occupier Israel and who is the occupied Palestine. Let us not forget that US taxpayer money fuels this violence. And let us remember that God's justice is not neutral and never sleeps. Silence in this matter is a sin we must be a moral voice, the voice of the prophets. I don't think being a mediator following in the way of the Spirit does not mean we refrain from speaking up in particular for those who have no voice, for advocating for those who are marginalized. I 
think we're called to be mediators when we follow the spirit, when we put the oppressed first. But three, I also think the mediator cannot fall into the trap of demonizing the oppressor or separating fully from the oppressor. Israel is an occupier who oppresses the Palestinians. And while we do not and cannot justify the occupation, we also need to listen and have, and in this case, of course, have sympathy for these people who were on the receiving end of the genocide that is Holocaust and who still experience massive anti-Semitism, both overtly and uh, institutionally and system systemically in our world. We mediators are called to advocate for the oppressed and also to give our ear to those who are oppressors. Now I say this honestly with some reticence. It's easy to talk about Palestine and Israel to some extent because I'm not Jewish, I'm not Palestinian, and the conflict is over the sea. That's harder when I imagine this dynamic of, of both advocating for the oppressor and listening to, the, or advocating for the oppressed and listening to the oppressor, rather, um, when you bring it home, when I'm no longer a third party uh, to the conversation. You know, it's easy to, to mimic Jesus, you know, who says, love your enemy. Um, but personally, as a straight white male, I don't have that many enemies. And so I say I think we should listen to our oppressors with some reticence. I certainly don't fully understand oppression or the experience of many disempowered groups in our country, and so I'm sure I'm missing a lot here. I know that there are surely times, particularly for those that are oppressed, when it is absolutely not the time to listen to the voice of the oppressor. It will only lead to further hurt and oppression, nothing that leads towards healing and reconciliation. There are absolutely times when people need to stay away from those that have in the past and might still victimize. But still, I do believe there are also times when we all need to lean into hard relationships. Henry Nouwen said, in the face of the oppressed, I recognize my own face. And in the hands of the oppressor, I recognize my own hands. We need to advocate for the victims of the world and listen to its victimizers, not only because it's the right thing to do to bring justice and not just for the healing of the world, but it might be also important for our own souls and for facing our own complicity in oppression. There are oppressors in the world and inner oppressors in our hearts. And we need to grapple with them both. And sometimes the inner work only happens when we come uh, starkly in, uh, in face of the oppression that's outside in the world. One more thought before I move on. Um, if we're gonna try to be in relationship with both sides, those with the power and those who are persecuted, how can we do so in a way that won't require us either to fall into the false equivalencies that we know about, you know, claiming that it's, it's, it's uh, 
it's just two sides of a, of a coin when, when one has the power and one does not, when one is the oppressor and one is the oppressed. Or how do we uh, avoid the trap of just sort of letting the, the oppressor, the one with the, ener uh, the power, sort of suck up all the energy? You know, we, we know that when you put together someone with power and someone who doesn't, usually the one with power sort of tends to do all the talking, right? And so I found myself thinking this week a little bit about um, how Jesus uh, engaged in his, uh, I don't know, workforce recruitment strategy, his calling of disciples. You know, he started uh, with the call of Peter and then James and John. These simple Fisher folks, it seems, not from a, a particularly high social strata. And they were not only the first, but they remained his inner circle. It was only later that he began to sort of add to the team um, with, with folks uh, from other contexts. Um, and one in particular that uh, I found myself thinking about is this uh, employee of the Roman Empire. So, you know, thought by many to be a collaborator and a traitor. Um, he was a tax collector. Um, and tax collectors were known uh, not only for uh, working for the empire, but also for being corrupt. Um, and, and of course, this guy's name was Matthew. Matthew did get invited to the table, but he wasn't the first. And he wasn't on the, in the inner circle, we don't believe. It was only after Peter and the others were there and established that, Pete, that Matthew was, was, was invited in. I wonder if the Peters of the world always need to come before the Matthews, because the Matthews so often take up all the space when they're there. And so it makes me wonder, you know, we talk a lot about welcoming people to the table, bringing new seats to the table. I'm wondering if that's good enough. I'm wondering if we need to entirely scrap the tables and get new ones and start over. Because those that are at the seats already um, don't really know how to give space to those that are coming in. Last thought, and I'm, um, I'm totally switching gears here, um, but I think it's worth it the time. So today's act story, the one that we heard in different languages, um, many of you know this story inside and out. Um, the disciples are hiding out in Jerusalem after the death of Jesus. They're uh, sheltering in place, if you will. Um, and then the time comes when it's time for them to leave, to go forth. And the Spirit, as it said, comes upon them like fire, like violent wind. And they start speaking, proclaiming the truth that they know, and the words that they speak somehow are understood, no matter the language that the listener ha knows. There is this new energy, this new uh, falling of barriers and divisions across language, across age, across ethnicity. It is so vibrant and wild that this chaos looks to onlookers like drunkenness. I think Pentecost is coming again as we emerge from pandemic. It's not going to make all the sense in the world. It too might look a little like 
drunkenness. But I think there will be new relationship, new connection, a new capacity to hear and be heard, to be mediators. And also an energy that we might have thought at times in the last 15 months that we would never be able to access again. That energy God promises to give to us again and again and again. Will there be answers and clarity? I don't think so. But energy and connection and chaotic delight? Absolutely. 